What's up, everybody? Before we get the podcast started, I have a little favor to ask of you. Um, My city, Jacksonville, Florida, is having this contest for this uh, big magazine in our city called the Folio Weekly. And you can vote on the best original band and best restaurant, blah, blah, blah. In the description of this podcast, there will be a link where you can vote on best original band in Jacksonville. And I I would ask that you would please vote for my band Dancing with Ghosts. And then you can vote for best podcast in Jacksonville. And I would love it if you voted for Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries and got us some, uh, you know, local recognition. That'd be really tight. So uh, on to the Himalaya ad. Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If so, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists and collections made just for you. Aww. Along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use! Exclamation point. It's definitely my favorite listening app, and I'm sure it'll be yours, too. Uh, so do yourself a favor, download Himalaya today, and be sure to follow Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries once you're there. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 157 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Friday, September 20th, 2019. Mike lived a week as a female, and he realized that it wasn't for him, so he uh, he got a reversal surgery, and he is male again. How are you feeling, Mike? I'm feeling pretty good. Um, uh, I don't know what you're talking about with that, but... Uh... Anyway, I want to thank Stephanie once again for filling in. Really appreciate uh, her hard work um, and uh, the help for, you know, filling in for me when our schedules wouldn't work. Uh, And it worked out for the better, too, because I caught a pretty nasty cold, which I am now just getting over. So, um... I probably would not have done it anyway <laughs> if 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 our schedules did work. So um, I'm just glad that this week is almost done because it was pretty fucking crazy for me because I was so behind the eight ball because of, you know, being sick for two to three days. It just knocked me out, screwed up my schedule. And so I had to do a lot of just last minute work on on stuff for school, study for an art exam that was on Tuesday and get a uh, field study done and finished up for the disease and epidemiology anthropology class I'm taking. And then, you know, work on another video and all that. I still have another video I need to shoot for uh, the, the video class. Um, digital cinema class that I'm taking, but uh, things are starting to slow down though, which I'm like, thank God, because it was just it was just one of those weeks where it was just a lot of fucking shit, and then on top of that, work, you know. <laughs> so um, I feel like it's been like that for you, like a lot, because I'll get with you at some point during the week, and I'm like, when can you podcast? And you're like, well, I can't do it this day, this day, this day, or this day. I might be able to do it at 9:35 on Sunday <laughs> for 15 minutes. 
And I'm like, well, Jesus Christ, man. Like, fuck. Well, I mean, that's kind of stuff what happens when you're balancing school and work at the same time. Um, but speaking of work, I got called in sick for the first time ever. Uh, one of the days I was sick. Um, because when I get colds and when I, you know, especially it's a really bad one. It fucks with my sinuses for a longer period of time than I think it might for others. So it takes me out a lot longer because my sinuses are like, they're very sensitive. So it's like if something gets infected or something's fucked up in there, it's fucked up for way longer than it should be. So I think I got that from my mom. So thank you. That, that's I really, really appreciate that gift. You're welcome, Mikey. Now go finish <laughs> your green beans. <laughs> Mike, why is your mom on the podcast? You you made my mom sound like one of those characters from like Rugrats or something or one of those cartoons from oh, back in the Mikey, 90s. Oh, Mikey, now you're calling me a goddamn cartoon character? You're grounded, mister. <laughs> now, <laughs> kind of reminds me of Miss Big Head. From Rocco's Modern Life. No, she was more like, Mike, don't make me sound like a cartoon character. You're yeah, grounded, mister. Yeah. <laughs> Sounded more like a recess character or something like that. Well, that's cool, man. So what I've been up to, what I've been doing, uh, as you cool hip cats out there might have known <laughs> from listening to last week's podcast, which Mike obviously didn't or else he would have gotten the uh, female transitioning to male joke that I made at the beginning of the podcast. Um, me and Stephanie went out on the streets of Jacksonville with our music. We're taking it to the street. I'm gonna see I'm taking it to the street. And that's what we did. We took it to the streets, son. Um, and we, we set up a bucket and a drum throne, and we played our songs on the streets of Five Points. Looked like you guys had a good time. I saw a little bit of your stream. I didn't didn't really check out the entire thing because I had a few things I was working on. Well, it was on. a two-hour-long stream, so that would have been yeah. a very generous donation mm-hmm. of your time if you had sat through <laughs> it. But some people did. Eddie uh, Romero, pod, podcast oh. devotee. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he, he checked out most of it. Um, and some other people that, that I don't may or may not listen to the podcast checked it out. Um, and you looked and sounded good. Thanks. Both of you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this weird thing, man. You know, it's like I, my voice was like my biggest Achilles tendon or, or my biggest insecurity point back in the day, but go figure you know you practice something long enough and you start getting better at it isn't that the craziest thing like yeah <laughs> it's like i'm just noticing though that like more often than not now whenever we do our vocals our we, our harmonies are locking together so much better than they used to and it, well yeah that's what'll happen when you work with somebody uh more and you really start to just build the, the chemistry yeah i mean and, not to mention that i've been lately through a bunch of different circumstances in my gigs and all I've been doing karaoke like three and four times a fucking week. So I've been do I've just been doing a lot of singing in general. And uh yeah, I think that's all just kinda, you know, because the the vocal cord is a muscle and uh yeah. it's you know, the more you work it out, the more it gets strengthened. But that was a fun experience. I did get a small little taste of how homeless people might feel because we were sitting there playing music, making noise, and for the most part the people who walked by just ignored us. Yeah, they didn't care. Like, they didn't even, like, look at us. They they acted like we were a part of the scenery or something. Mm-hmm. And and 
I, I'm not, I'm not saying they're wrong for doing that. I just, uh, that feeling of not being like acknowledged was kind of crappy, especially like when, you know, we're, we're doing something, we're performing a yeah. service. We're not just asking for money. Um, so that was kind of crap, but I mean, that wasn't everyone. There were some people who were interested and we did get to hand out some flyers and, you know, we're, we're just, we're trying to step into the next level of, of getting this band off the ground. You know, we're doing things that, that would scare most other bands. You know, I don't know of any mm -hmm. other Jacksonville band that would get out on the sidewalk with their guitar and just do their songs raw like that. I mean, to me, that's not to toot my own horn, but that's like one of the ballsiest things I've heard of a local band doing in a long time. And I don't know. I just think we're proving that we want it the most, you know, out of everyone here. Everyone else is like not even close to on our level of promoting and, you know, pounding the pavement. I mean, we went to, we went to an open mic night Wednesday and played songs in front of people, you know, just an open mic. We just played our set and, you know, we're just, we're just really trying to uh, get our name out there. And, and, and um, we got this crazy offer. I mean, it wasn't crazy. It was awesome, but it was so random. This lady reached out to me, to the band, through our email. And uh, she wants us to play at their wedding in June in Wisconsin. Uh -huh. And she's going to like pay for us to go out there and all. And we thought, well, shit, if we're going to be going all the way up to Wisconsin, let's make a tour out of it. So I'm pretty sure June 2020, we're going to be going on a tour through the Midwest. Okay. Hitting up Chicago, probably Tennessee, Atlanta again. Um, Playing in front of a bunch of cheeseheads. And... Yeah, I mean, so if anyone's listening to this, um, you know. Fans of Dub Bears. <laughs> if you, if you want to find out more about my band, Dancing with Ghosts, you can find us on uh, Facebook and Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, YouTube. Um yeah, so that's what I've been having going on. There's a vote, which is something I'll probably put at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, there's a Folio Weekly, the kind of the local zine in Jacksonville is having a best of 2019. And we made the nomination of uh, the top five best uh, original bands in Jacksonville. And I want to win number one. And I feel like we can with our great listeners. And thank you, everyone, by the way, who's listening to this, who voted for us already. Um, uh, like I said, you know, in the pre-roll that you heard, the link to vote for us will be in the description of this podcast. But anyway, with all that stuff out of the way, we got some, uh, some more unsolved mysteries coming at you at lightning at supersonic speeds. <laughs> yeah. It's as fast as the Concord. Um, so, uh, I've been rewatching season 12 i've been doing that for a while i just got back into rewatching uh, episodes of unsolved mysteries again and i uh, watched a couple of them last night and there were a couple cases i was mulling over in terms of choosing for this week's podcast but eventually i settled on the east area rapist aka the original night stalker uh before Richard Ramirez, there was another Night Stalker. And this is a pretty scary case, really, to be perfectly honest. It's pretty uh, intense. And uh, I thought the reenactment was actually pretty very well done for this particular period of Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, definitely had moments that really racketed up the tension 
Uh, there was even a moment in the reenactment that was almost like a jump scare that actually got me. <laughs> oh, really? Which which part? Uh, I'll get to it a little oh, bit okay. later. So, um, before I get into the unsolved.com's uh, overview of the segment, uh, I want to mention something that I thought was a little bit kind of kind of funny uh, for something that's so genuinely horrifying and horrible. Uh, they're mentioning, you know, the usual uh, details about who the suspect is, the gender and the date of birth and the height and the eye color and whatever. But under defining characteristics on the unsolved.com site, they list medium build and very thick legs. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, defining characteristics for for the uh, serial uh, rapist slash serial killer, so for them to like go out of their way to like note that that motherfucker must have some tree trunks. I uh, know he must on. have been thick. Oh yeah, T H I C C thick. <laughs> so in October of 1976, a woman was tied up and raped in an affluent suburb just outside of Sacramento, California. This rape victim who asked what her that yeah she asked that her identity remain confidential is one of more than 50 women believed to have been assaulted by a serial rapist who terrorized the Sacramento area during the 1970s. In this reenactment they try to to make it look like the 70s but you can tell they don't really have the budget. So they just, like, get some 70s-looking clothes from, like, the thrift store and do a, do a few things. Maybe have some, like, cheesy furniture from, you know, back in the day and just try to try to recreate the 70s look, but, like, they just don't have the budget. Yeah, to I was really actually thinking that myself when I was watching and I was like, this is not filmed like the 70s. This does not look like the 70s. This has no... Uh, aside from them telling you the actual time, this has no yeah. aesthetic of the 70s no, to it. No, it doesn't. And I think it's because you know they didn't have the budget. This is the Lifetime series, so they didn't have as much money to to use for uh, reenactment. I mean, hell, like the, the, direction. the early seasons of Unsolved Mysteries looked more like the 70s just naturally <laughs> than, yeah. than, than anything they did here. Yeah. So this is, uh, I believe, one of the victims who is quoted here. She says, I remember waking up with a flashlight shining in my face. And this is, her voice was uh, modulated in this segment, which made it even more creepy. Dude, that scared the shit out of me as a kid. I didn't know, I didn't understand, I didn't understand, like, what that was and why they did that. I just thought, I didn't know, I just didn't know. So all of a sudden you see this dark, shadowy figure who's like, and then when I woke up, I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) going on i know yeah like you'd think it was like a demon yeah yeah. like did they capture satan did did they rape (laughs) satan and now satan's all like sensitive and shit about it like what the hell prince of darkness so i remember waking up with a flashlight shining in my face that in itself is terrible oh yeah yeah totally and i was looking down the barrel of a gun and he said don't move don't make a sound or i will kill you and within a moment's notice, my life was all of a sudden in the control of somebody else. The mysterious attacker, known to police as the East Area Rapist, was never identified. 
And in recent years, dramatic advances in law enforcement technology determined, determined that the same man was responsible for a series of murders in the 1980s. So this East Area rapist, he would not only rape his victims, but he would psychologically torture them by totally destroying their their uh, trust and faith in their own home by breaking and entering. And then he would tie these women up. And he'd make himself a sandwich. Yeah, he'd tie these women up, <laughs> he'd rape them, or he'd wait to rape them, and he'd just hang out. He would hang out in the, in the house for hours. In, he would hang out in their house, make some food, smoke a cigarette... That that's that in itself is some kind of a fetishy thing, I would think. Yeah, like just, absolutely. Just, He's probably really getting off. Oh on yeah, that. like just being in in a stranger's house, knowing they're tied up in the other room. I bet it was some like sexual rush for him. So the East Area rapist displayed some unusual habits, including lingering in the victims' homes for hours. On the night of the attack, the unidentified victim sensed her attacker was smoking in her living room. She's quoted again here. The police felt that he had gotten into my refrigerator. I think he was in the house anywhere from two and a half to three hours. I lay there for what seemed like a long period of time, and then all of a sudden I couldn't see, I couldn't move, and I couldn't yell. And I remember wondering, is this it? Is this the way I'm going to die? And after sexually assaulting his victims, the rapist would quietly sneak away. And he wore the traditional garb of what a lot of people will look at as a stereotypical uh, burglar with the ski mask and the dark clothes and everything. And the moment that really got me, that was a jump scare moment, was where the the woman who, who was raped, she's talking about her story. And she's talking about like, oh, I, I, was, I was there for what seemed like hours. And, and I, I could sense that he was in, he was in, in the home. And then he would, and I wasn't prepared for him to come back. And then he just came back and surprised me, uh, and just uh, to to let me know that he was still there. And that that the that moment in the reenactment got me because it's it's shot in a way where it's it's very sudden. He just shows up and plops down on the pillow. Yeah, and he, he, he even says her. in the rea reenactment when he yeah. does that, he goes, did you miss me? Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like fucking some Joker Dark Knight shit. Yeah, um, so yeah, that one got me because I, I wasn't expecting that particular uh, moment there. So that was a pretty uh, well-made sequence in terms of dealing with some horror movie tropes in, in, a, in an Unsolved Mysteries fashion. So... Detective Carol Daly of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department interviewed many of the rapist victims, and she's quoted here. The East Area rapist definitely did have a psychological rape along with the physical rape. The manner in which he would threaten the victims, the length of time that he stayed in the home, made his crime different and unique. Absolutely, it's he not only takes away uh, their innocence you know and in, in other ways into you know in terms of by raping them but he takes away the sanctity the sanctity of their home along with that uh it's 
unique because a lot of the think about about a lot of rapists that that uh, have been featured on the news or we might have discussed or briefly mentioned on this podcast like what the guy who would go around and i5 or something or i don't know that guy was just a random thrill killer but uh there was a particular was like a boston rapist that was featured on the show uh he would you know follow the women from the shopping mall you know back to their cars or whatever or wait for them to be alone uh while they're closing the store this is different. He goes to their home. He breaks into their home. He doesn't steal anything except, you know, he, he steals some some sexual pleasure uh, and uh and steals the the faith and and safety that these women uh, initially had in in their own residence. So and this guy ended up raping up to 50 women in this particular time span when he was uh just going around breaking into homes and just raping and just really just psychologically and physically just destroying these these poor victims. And it became to the point it came it got to the point where people in Sacramento were understandably paranoid. I mean you would be You'd be scared you, you, if you were a woman in Sacramento while this guy was breaking into homes and raping women, you would be you would be scared. You would be terrified. You'd be very worried that you might be next. So the first 15 attacks occurred in homes only inhabited by women and children. But then the rapist became even more brazen. And this is something that makes this case even more of a standout because he would change his M.O., so according to Carol Daly, he then began targeting homes in which a man was also present. When the rapist would come in, he would at gunpoint order the female to tie up the male in the house. And then he would remove the female to the other part of the house where he would also tie her up. And then he would put dishes on the husband. While he was in the other room occupied with the sexual assault, he could hear whether or not the male was trying to get free. I think he liked the excitement of the game. I think it was as much a game with investigators as it was for what he was doing to the victims. Yeah, and this is this is another unique aspect of this uh, particular scumbag's uh, M.O. Like, who else have we ever covered on this podcast who had a quirk like that? Yeah, it is bizarre, but it's smart at the same time because every house is going to have dishes, you know, mm -hmm. so it's like and it's effective because, yeah, you fucking move and those things start clanking around and all like, you know, because yeah. he's talking about, you know, if, if you move like I will hear it and I will kill everyone in this. house. So the sadistic game being played by the rapist often extended beyond the attack itself. The unidentified victim, along with several other victims, reported receiving disturbing phone calls from the rapist years later. Like, that's not enough that he raped these poor women, broke into their homes, terrified them to death. Here he is years later, just calling them up, bringing up those old uh, wounds, and, you know, just digging the knife in even further. Or in this case, his dick. Oh my God, my <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. 
<laughs> but that's probably what he's imagining. Probably so. <laughs> I, that 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 is definitely not a turn I would see Keith Morrison doing on Dateline or something like that. No. Or in this case, <laughs> his dick. <laughs> So uh, this is, a, a, I think, one of the victims who's quoted here. I felt by what he said to me that he had been still watching me and stalking me. I felt absolutely terrified. I think the phone calls were just his way of saying, you're still my hostage. Even though I'm not in your house, psychologically, you're still my hostage. And that's absolutely horrible. Like that, that, that you would never be able to get over that. It would just always be on your mind. It would always be there. No matter how much therapy you went to or how much help you received, it's just a scar that's so deep in your psyche that it's just never going to go away. And then when something like that happens, it just makes it even worse. So by the late 1970s, the East Area Rapists had moved 50 miles west to Contra Costa County. Five more assaults were reported there. And then, according to Lieutenant Richard Selby of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, the attacks abruptly stopped. Now, before I get into that point, I want to mention this moment where the, the reenactment talks about how there was a meeting with, uh, I think, the Sacramento state officials and, and other people from the Sacramento area, other residents... And there was this, they were talking about the rapist and there was one guy who stood up and he was all like, I'm not afraid of this guy. You know, I'll take him on, you know, that whole sort of deal. He's like, I, I, you know, if he comes into my house, I'm going to take care of him. That's basically the gist of it. And apparently him and his wife were the next victims of, of, of the killer. Of the rapist, you know, at the time, he would eventually move into killing. Yeah, which which means that he was in that meeting. Yeah, while everyone was talking about him, you know, he was there clandestinely yeah. listening in, and then and and you know probably followed them home after the meeting. Yep, makes you think twice about you know when you're in a in a meeting like that talking about some infamous uh, criminal makes you think twice about, you know, talking shit, you know? <laughs> well, thankfully, I haven't been in a meeting like that ever, and I, I hope to never be in a situation like that, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I understand the frustration and wanting to air it out, but when you're dealing I mean, with knowing what we know, where a lot of these individuals they like to be around uh, the scene of the crime or in in places just like that because they get off on that yeah. as well as all the other uh, crimes that they commit. Well, that's why BTK came out of retirement essentially was yeah. because they he felt he felt like he was b being forgotten, you mm -hmm. know, like like people had forgotten him so. Yeah, he had to make his presence. It's it's all it's all this just extremely narcissistic ego stroking. Yeah. So five more results were reported there, and then the tax abruptly stopped. Uh, everybody speculated about where this guy might have gone and why he might have stopped. 
and then there was nowhere to go with it. We had no real physical description. The trail eventually grew cold. But over the years, criminalist Paul Holes of the Contra Costa Sheriff's Department continued to work the case. He ran DNA profiles on semen recovered from the five rapes in his county. He then attempted to track down the rapist. Holes began contacting agencies across the state. 400 miles south in Orange County, forensic scientist Mary Hong had used DNA to link six rape murders in her county to a single killer. In 2001, Mary got a call from Paul Holes. Independently, he was thinking that this guy has to be committing these crimes somewhere else. So he actually was calling these agencies and finding out if they had any cases that fit his profile. I had him read me the profile that he had on his case, and I compared that to the profile that I had on our cases, and they all matched all the way across. Wow. How often do you see this kind of thing where a killer, you know, he starts out with like 50 rapes, he's a serial rapist, and then he moves into killing? I wonder how, how common that is. Probably very common, I would think. Because I think there were some other uh, serial killers I think we might have talked about on on this podcast that started off a little bit, you know, like doing some stuff like that and then moved up into... into uh, I mean, killing. if it's all a lust for control, uh, murder is the ultimate for, uh, form of controlling somebody. You know, you're 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 choosing whether they live or die. Mm hmm. So the East Area rapist had become a South, a Southern California killer, leaving a tra- trail of deaths in his wake. Larry Poole of, of or- the Orange County Sheriff's Department headed up the Southern California investigation. He's quoted here. I don't know of anyone like him. He's a very unique offender. Fifty rapes that we're aware of. 10 murders that we're aware of, and we suspect that he's probably responsible for more rapes and murders and crimes outside of what we've identified. With the biological link to the Northern California rapes confirmed, investigators now had 50 additional cases to comb through in search of new clues to the serial killer's identity. According to Larry Poole, the East Area Rapist MO of stacking plates on the victim's partner during the assault is believed to be particularly unique. It's a signature aspect of our offender. Is it possible that someone abused him and treated him the same way, terrorizing him, perhaps as a boy when he grew up? It's possible. I don't want to end my career without having solved this. And if it's not solved by the time I retire, then I'll think about it until the day I die. And it uh, actually was eventually solved. So I want to give a little bit more detail, though, on the murders, because this uh, overview doesn't really go into them very in very much detail. So his first few Southern California victims were couples who were home together when they were attacked. None of them survived. Dr. Robert Offerman and his girlfriend, Deborah Manning, were shot to death in Dr. Offerman's Santa Barbara home, on December 30th, 1979. A few months later, after Mar- later March th- on March 13th, 1980, Charlene and Lyman Smith were found murdered in their Ventura home. Authorities believe that the Ventura and Santa Barbara murders were connected. 
The killer then headed further south to Laguna Niguel, where he killed Keith Harrington, and then raped and also murdered Keith's wife, Patricia, on August 19th of 1980. The next victim was a woman who was home alone named Manuela Withun. Manuela was killed on February 27th, 1981, while her husband was spared because he was in the hospital at the time. Then back in Santa Barbara between July 26th and 27th of 1981, Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez were brutally murdered in Sherry's home. Surprisingly, the killer stopped his murderous rampage for almost five years until May 4th, 1986, when he came upon 18-year-old Janelle Cruz of Irvine, California. Janelle was unable to go with her family on a vacation in Mexico and thus left to tend to the house while the rest of her family was gone. The killer entered her home that night and sexually assaulted and murdered her. Janelle's rape and murder was the last suspected murder of the rapist. In the years following the rapes and murders, several surviving victims claimed that their attacker had called and taunted them over the phone, which we mentioned already. And the uh, investigators were talking about how they had theories that this uh, was a man who maybe became disabled and he couldn't do any more crimes because of that, or he died and that's why they haven't really been able to find him, or he was in, he was behind bars. All right. And he was eventually captured and linked to all of these crimes. Uh, DNA testing initially showed that the Offerman slash Manning murders and the Dominguez Sanchez murders were committed by a killer separate from the original Night Stalker. However, in 2011, advanced DNA testing confirmed that these four victims were also killed by E.A.R. Hans. Uh, the, uh, I, I guess, uh, original Night Stalker? Um, oh yeah, East Area Rapist slash original Night Stalker. In June of 2016, the FBI announced that there was enough evidence to connect the murders of Brian and Katie McGore to the East Area Rapist slash original Night Stalker case. It was also announced that there is a $50,000 reward leading to the assailant's capture. Finally, on April 25th, 2018, it was announced that the perpetrator had been identified. That's fairly recent, actually. Yeah. Police arrested 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo and charged him with the murders of the Magors and the Smiths. DNA testing linked him to the rapes and the murders. D'Angelo was a police officer during the East Area Rapist Crimes, but he was fired in 1979. He was living in, the, in nearby Auburn during the time of the rapes. Along with being identified as the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker, he has also been identified as the Vesalia Ransacker. So I wonder what that is. Is that like what he started to do first? That that would explain all this gradual ramping up of crimes that he's doing. He'll just break in, ransack somebody's home, rob, do some robbery, then, you know, leave. He got his kicks a little bit there. Then got tired of that and then moved into breaking and entering and raping people. And then after that, breaking and entering, raping, and then killing people. This is a guy, if there was a step past killing, he would have gone to that step. And the next one after that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he just kept escalating everything he was doing. Ransacking, raping, murdering. That's why, you know... When uh, when people like that are caught, they just need to throw away the key or put them to death. Either one is mm -hmm. fine with me. 
Yeah. So investigators uploaded the then identify unidentified killer's DNA profile to a public genealogy website, GED Match, and through the website they were able to locate a fourth cousin of the killer. They then mapped out a family tree, which helped them narrow down their search for D'Angelo. A DNA sample was taken from trash discarded by him, which was found to match the DNA from the crime scenes. That's fitting. For a piece of human fucking trash, like Joseph D'Angelo, it's fitting that it is trash that finally got him convicted. That was very punny. I know. But it it actually is rather it does it does fit. So, D'Angelo has since been charged with all twelve murders. He is currently facing preliminary hearings in Sacramento, so he hasn't actually been convicted just yet. But it, it's let's let's just say it's 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 pretty much a done deal. <laughs> it's DNA evidence. He's linked to it. He has other crimes that he's connected to as well. So I, I think it's all just a matter of, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's at this point. Couldn't believe they had that law in the books to where, like, if you, you can't collect a inmate's uh, blood for DNA testing. Yeah, that one, yeah. Uh, in, in, if it is against their will. And he was talking about how there's over yeah, on death row. Yeah, there's over 500 people on death row who they do not have a DNA profile of. So, you know, if they get executed and they were responsible for something else, well, the world will just never know. Mm-hmm. Although I wonder if you could take uh, the, the cadavers DNA at that point, you know, once they're dead. Hmm. Uh, I wonder how all that works. There's probably a legal, still a legal there, thing. Yeah, probably. Like, you have, probably have to have some consent from the family or something. I don't know why they can't just, like, bloop, like, take a little fucking, uh, take a little, uh, like, a, uh, like, tweezer or something of their hair follicles or something. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, I don't know. It just seems... I don't know why they can't just, like get some DNA from, you know, hair or some other, you know, skin or something that's just left behind naturally. Well, yeah, sometimes they're able to do that. Like I remember watching some crime show and the interrogator guy went to like met this guy at a public place and he was wanting his DNA and he gave him like a cup of coffee or a soda can or something. And then after their meeting, the, the suspect threw it away and then the investigator pulled it out of the trash and just from, what little bit of saliva that was left on the lip of the uh, drink, they were able to get a, a DNA mm-hmm. sample from that, which is fucking insane. Yeah. Crazy. Um, and this case is pretty insane. Just the the sheer level of depravity of this particular uh, criminal. You know, where, you know, the escalation of his crimes... And, you know, just how many people he has terrorized and just destroyed over the years. Yeah, yeah, so that's one of those, uh, that's one of those defective human beings, that's for sure. I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to be defective and it only affects you, but when your defective brain is fucking with other people, that's when it's a problem. Well, I mean, it's a problem either way, but it's, it's a serious more serious problem when you are affecting other people with your mental fuckery. 
yeah, by, by murdering or raping them, you know, by murdering or raping them, because I guess we all affect our other people with our mental fuckery. Uh, you know, even if it's something like depression, you're still, you know, your family's worried about you and blah, blah, blah. That's why I just don't even. There's different levels yeah. of, of of mental fuckery, yes, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> These are all. Um, these this is one of the higher. The, this is like the highest level of, of mental fuckery. Yes, these are all very highbrow <laughs> terms. No need to worry yourself with uh, defining them. It's a little <laughs> too outside of anybody's understanding. No, no need to bother uh, with you know looking it up. Yeah, the dictionaries have not caught up to my 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 just well Your eloquence. My my eloquence <laughs> and my well of of. The uh, command of the English language. <laughs> With a sentence that doesn't... No, that made no sense. sense. That was an awful <laughs> sentence. That was not an example. That was a poor example of what I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, you guys get it, right? You get it. <laughs> All right, so moving on. So that's on. Uh, my thoughts on uh, the Night Stalker uh, slash the East Area Rapist. Um, I don't think you have any more things to say about this piece of shit, right? Nope. That's pretty much, I mean, lock your doors, live on the second story if you can, if you live in an apartment, um, you know, get rid of all your plates. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I remember. I'm just imagining what the, what that what the effect of that would be, because that was a well known thing, probably in the public. The police would have let them know about his mo. So would would it, or maybe they didn't. But if they did, if people did know about his mo that he liked to use plates, were there people in Sacramento at the time who were like, get rid of the fucking plates? <laughs> I, even when I even when I first moved in here, like. I, I wasn't sure about this neighborhood. I wasn't sure about, you know, what what would may or may not go down out here. So whenever I would go to bed, and I still do this to this day, like I will pace from my back door to my front door like several times and just make for damn sure they are locked. And what I would even do besides that was I would lock my bedroom door so if someone did break in and, and that did you know I didn't that didn't wake me up then they'd have to like break through my door in my bedroom you know so there was a bunch of you know security checks in my mind at least to where I, I might at least have time to like spring for my baseball bat and like whack them in the head or something you know so I don't yeah. know you just got to kind of the things that seem obvious, you just got to stick to them because I tell you what, man, that one time I forgot to lock my car door outside was the night that my shit got jacked. Yeah. Like, and it's just one yeah. of those simple things where it's like, oh, I forgot to lock my car door tonight. Oh, fuck it. Whatever. It's a pretty. Oh, it's like the like the case we talked about last time with the bombing. Yeah, you know, yeah, oh, the war tired, day, yeah. blah blah, you know. Yeah, which you know, <laughs> it sucks and it's scary for so many reasons because I mean, to me that tells me and the people involved in that segment, that tells me that these motherfuckers are trying me all the time. They are always going up to my car in my yard to see if it's locked or unlocked. Or yeah. or else it wouldn't have gotten broken into unless that was just the luckiest thief in the world who the one time they try to you know open up my car it happens to be the doors happen to be unlocked you know so it's like mm -hmm. 
it's just one of those things where uh, it's it's something you try to not think about. But I mean, it's kind of a reality. I mean, if you unless you're like living behind a, you know, a fucking yeah. mansion walls or something. I mean, if you're just a <laughs> Joe Schmo like me who lives, yeah. you know, kind of in the city ish. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I also think the another interesting aspect of, of this uh, criminal is that he was a former police officer. So that makes it so he has that knowledge that police officers get, you know, and in, in training and all of that. So that probably helped him with his stalking techniques. It helped him with, you know, breaking and entering. It, it helped him. Uh, evade authorities for years more than likely that knowledge that he obtained that he had up his sleeve and and that's just something too that like like the bad chief you know guy like you, you just you don't think of a police officer you know someone who's there to uphold the law and protect everyone and you know serve and protect and all of that you just it's unfathomable to think that the same person who's on the beat and there to uh uphold the law and protect the innocent is actually a killer or a criminal himself you know it's it's do you th- it's like two things that it are really hard to put together do you think this guy in your mind. do you think this guy is persona non grata at the uh, annual policeman's balls more than likely. I mean, he got fired anyway, probably because they saw a lot of his uh, uh, psychological issues that were starting to uh, come to the forefront. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's all I got to say about that one. Moving on, we'll talk about the case of John Grundhofer and his bumbling buffoon of a <laughs> kidnapper who uh, who looks like a chubby Inspector Gadget. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know why these fat guys keep wearing those circle glasses. They just don't, you know, those like fucking like like uh, what's his face? Uh, the Coke bottle glasses? No, yeah. no, they're not Coke bottle. They're like the glasses that like the Teddy Roosevelt glasses, the circle, yeah. the circle ones, or the Ben Franklin mm-hmm. glasses. Fat people do not wear, do not wear the circle glasses. They don't do your round face any favors. It just makes you look more comical, which this guy looked very comical. And I love the guy who played him in the reenactment. I thought, yeah, he was great. I thought he did good and he looked, you know, goofy and shit like the composite of the real guy. Would have made it even better is to have someone like John Candy show up in, in, the, in the reenactment and, the, and play the kidnapper or, or you know, Chris Farley because, you know, the, it's a fat guy. You know, in a coat. If I could, if I could get <laughs> one wish to get back Chris Farley or John Candy, it's John Candy all day for me. Oh, me too, me too. I like Chris Farley, and there are a lot of things, a lot of films that he did that I do enjoy. But John was a special talent, and I think if he had lived, I think he would have transitioned into more dramatic roles, and I think he would have excelled at that too. I just love him, dude. He's just like one of those characters. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy, he, and everyone loved him. Uh, people that knew him personally, you know, he was the real deal. Genuine article, you know, what you see is what you get. The character Del Griffith in Plane Trains and Automobiles that was not a made up thing. Like that really was John Candy. 
Um, and I mean, there's a reason why the, and when he died, like the really busy Los Angeles, uh, area freeway that was like, you know, always constantly going, it's crazy busy all the time. They shut it down for his funeral. Wow. Like the entire freeway just completely shut down. Damn. I mean, that's the kind of reverence and, uh, um, tribute to to a man and and to anybody that you, you rarely see nowadays, um, even for you know a celebrity. But yeah, I mean, I I miss. There's not a day that goes by I don't miss John. I mean, I tear up every time at the end of uh, Cool Runnings because there's that black and white photo of John with with the Jamaican bobsled team and that that score in the background. It, it's almost like it's it's it, it, it's an obituary already, right? For John, and I, I'm getting a little choked up just thinking about it. To be honest, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to uh, stir up uh, raw emotions there, but now I I feel you on that. Um, but anyway, yeah, it would have been great if John could have played the role of uh, the guy who uh, <laughs> kidnapped Grunhofer. But anyway, on November nineteenth, nineteen ninety, a wealthy businessman executive, John. Grundhofer arrived at his offices at 8.10 a.m. in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As he exited his car in the parking garage, a man calling himself Carl approached John and tried to abduct him at gunpoint. However, John tried to struggle with his abductor. Meanwhile, a witness, Jeff Rasmussen, heard the commotion and responded, but the kidnapper ordered him to leave. At eight th- and this struggle is pretty... <laughs> yeah, like, uh, you know... It's pretty pathetic. <laughs> yeah, like, like Carl, quote-unquote, pulls this gun out on Grunhofer in this parking garage, and Grunhofer apparently isn't feeling very intimidated by this guy because as soon as Carl looks away, he's trying to... He, like, wrestles the gun out of his hand, and they're, like, wrestling, and then, like, the dialogue, all you hear is, oh, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> <Yeah>. like... <laughs> You fucking serious right now like this is the worst this is the worst stick up i've ever been been in you know like uh. you're you're such an amateur um but uh yeah at any at 8 13 a.m the gunman ordered john into his car forcing him to drive out of the garage to wisconsin with dynamite handcuffed to his arm a passerby soon found well and if you looked at the dynamite like it was clearly like not connected. This guy, it was just like, here's some sticks of dynamite. And he just like put them in a plastic bag, had a couple wires tied the bag to him, to the handcuffs and was like, it's a bomb. I have a remote. I, I'm, I, you know, if you don't do what I tell you to, I'll b- blow you up. But if you think about it, it's like, yeah. And you'll blow, you'll blow everyone up, including you. Yeah. <laughs> like your plan is fucking stupid and you're trying to rob me which means that you know <laughs> you, you you do intend to live after this because you want to spend that money yet you're talking about blowing me up in this car that you are also in you fuck you fucking idiot yeah because it's dynamite it's not like you know the the vests that you know the some of the terrorists have used to you know get people in hostage situations those are set up where it's just going to blow up one person and that's it. Dynamite, that many six of dynamite is is unpredictable and probably just going to blow up the car and 
you know, everyone in it, and it's just, I, yeah, I, it's, it's another level of stupidity for this, uh, this fat guy in a little coat. <laughs> so a passerby soon found a note at the garage with the, which the FBI believed to be a cheat sheet <laughs> for the kidnapper. The sheet would remind him oh, about everything God. he was going to order John to do, suggesting that the gunman was not a professional. It was hilarious. Like I just, I'm just imagining the FBI agent, you know, and what they were thinking when they're like, "What's this sheet of paper?" And they're like, "It's fucking directions. <laughs> this gun, it's the gunman's directions." Yeah, it was. It was like you know, the, on the note it said, "Do what I say." Or, or else I will hurt you and your family, like in big Sharpie. Yeah. And it has uh-huh. like this little itemized list of like, you know. I'm just imagining this this fat guy with his chubby fingers, you know, having a piece of paper and like a Sharpie, and eating a hoagie sandwich, and, you know, writing down the list. <laughs> so at around 8.45 a.m., John and the gunman had crossed the state line into Wisconsin The man asked him a few questions, which led John to believe that he had done research about his company. At 8.57 a.m., John was ordered to pull into a secluded rest area, where the gunman told John that he wanted $3 million ransom. John called his secretary and told her of the gunman's demands. This again suggested that this was not a professional kidnapper because he asked for $1,000 bills. I didn't even know $1,000 bills were real. Yeah, they are. Yeah, uh, so are, I think it goes up to, like, $5,000. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and there, you know, the FBI was saying, you know, like, <laughs> we knew this guy was, was not a professional because nobody's going to w- ask for a $1,000 bill because nobody's walking around with a $1,000 bill. No. It's fucking... You're not going to go to a retail store and give the clerk a thousand dollar bill and get changed it's not happening yeah well not only that but i mean it's like gee we're looking for this kidnapper and he wanted a thousand dollar bills pretty easy to put a a (laughs) worldwide be out be on the lookout if uh someone walks into a uh furniture store and is trying to buy a lazy boy and he whips out a thousand dollar bill <laughs> maybe call in about that because that could be a little bit of a red flag like yeah if you go to a bank and try to cash that in i mean you could probably yeah, go to you could probably go to like some drug lord in Colombia and be like hey i want a thousand dollars worth of cocaine here's my payment even they're gonna be like whoa 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 no we're not taking that (laughs) that's suspicious as fuck mi amigo (laughs) like fucking idiot the employees at first national bank system began preparing the ransom but when the gunman realized he had lost his cheat sheet he became frustrated and had john go down a hill the actor was great here when he lost his cheat sheet he's like what have you seen my list he's like what list He's like, the list I had in the garage. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, never mind, just keep walking. <laughs> Another thing is saying is the first national bank system began pre- preparing the ransom. What what kind of cobweb-ridden vault did they have to go into to get $1,000 bills? What kind of... They probably had to go like like go into like some underground bunker from the 18, yeah. uh, 1800s where they used to keep <laughs> gold you know, from prospectors and shit and <laughs> dust off their... Uh, they're, no, they're, they they went to the uh, the uh, drug dealers, uh, you know, uh, underground uh, caverns. You know that one guy. Who oh, had, Uribe, who had yeah, Uribe, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, they had to they had to dust off their uh, Grover Cleveland thousand dollar bill, you know, <laughs> with like, oh, he was the most recent president at the time. Like, how did they how, how did the bank even acquire that? You know, they're not keeping those. I around. don't even know if they even had thousand dollar bills back then. No, they I did. Have no idea. That was more that was more of an old timey thing, actually. So, like, the later you go back in history, the more likely it is that. They okay. They they would use it mainly for, uh, uh, to my understanding, those bigger bills was main were mainly used to transfer in between banks, uh, yeah, large sums of money uh-huh. and like country like other countries and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean the weirdest uh currency that I run across is either like a two dollar bill, or you know old money because you know a lot of the time when you get like money. It's the newer money, you know, with the newer the designs and everything. It, it's it's kind of strange and surreal. It makes me nostalgic. Get, like, I get instantly nostalgic when I see old money because that's how yeah. that's how all of it looked when and I. And then you have kid. the other stuff where you're just like, people still have the Sacagawea dollar coin, you know. Oh, everybody's hoarding those. And, everybody yeah. everybody thinks they're gonna be worth money someday. Just like and I think there was another one too, like. And I don't think it was, it wasn't gold, so when I first saw it, I was like, what the heck is this? Oh, it was probably a Susan B. Anthony dollar. Yeah. Yeah, I got, yeah. A, I got a bunch of those, too. Um, Yeah, that's funny. That's like the same people who, like, hoarded the state quarters thinking, you know, that's like <laughs> yeah. the funniest thing to me, because it's like, oh, really? Yeah, you and, and every other American in the world are, uh, you're all going to be rich someday, because, you know... Those are going to be hard to find. Well, yeah, it, it's like uh, when when uh, Nintendo did the whole Amiibo thing, and initially, like everything was like really rare, and there's only limited uh, quantities of certain Amiibos, and then uh, a year or months later, uh, a, a Nintendo was like, "We have more, like unlimited Amiibos," and then the stock just completely just fell off. Yeah, it, the anything. the um, the Nintendo Classic. Yeah, I was about to say it was the the intentional uh, low supply to you know build interest. I re- I really think that's that was a uh, on purpose kind of thing. I don't think that was oh, an yeah. accident. Nintendo did that on purpose, one hundred percent. And that I mean, they even gave uh, certain retailers only a limited amount to put out on the shelf, which is so douchey. And and all it does is help out scalpers, like that douchebag kid I went to school with, Chris Tipton, who fucking <laughs> hoarded all those. Uh, and SNES classics, and he's like, you yeah. know, I'll sell it to you for. I think he was wanting like 150 bucks uh-huh. or some or three, some crazy amount. Yeah. I'm like, dude, fuck you, go fuck yeah, yourself. Yeah, people sharing their Facebook post, you know, posts where they had they show their haul of like ten, ten of them, you know, all in, all stacked in a row, cleared out the whole store. What a you know, dirt bag, man. <laughs> hate those people they're the worst i hate scalpers and then and then people would defend them like oh well you know they're just making a living you know, capitalism. You know they're taking advantage they're taking advantage of the system you know it's those people didn't buy it those are the know, same exact pay. people those are the same exact motherfuckers who ruin everything for everybody because they abuse you know the honor system in whatever the situation is it's like, you know, vaping inside was something that everyone just kind of turned a blind eye to at first because it's like, oh, well, it's not a cigarette and it doesn't really bother anybody. And then you got douchebags like Chris Tipton, who would be the type of people that like, oh, we can vape inside and they bring their mega Mac daddy vape that produces <laughs> enough fucking fog 
to where it looks like a goddamn yes concert in there and you know fucking just smogging the whole place out and then you know okay fuck it no one can no one can vape anymore no one can vape anymore because the one douchebag ruined it so now no one can vape inside you have to go outside with the cigarette smokers you are you are one in the same now because people like that Uh they you know please take one free sample Chris Tipton runs and takes 20 free fucking samples. Oh, it takes the whole tray. Now we're not this doing free samples tray. anymore because there's always got to be that one motherfucker that ruins it for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the gunman removed the dynamite, tied up John, and forced him into a sleeping bag and taped its mouth shut before vanishing. Uh, it took 20 minutes for John to free himself, and at 10.25 a.m., he called his office from a farmhouse. That was a super quick transition. Yes, I know. <laughs> It's funny too when they're going down the hill. The the, the yeah, he's like <sighs> the kidnapper got winded and, and they had to stop so he could catch his breath. We need to start, we need to start. We need to take a break. Yeah, we take a break. <sighs> <sighs> but uh, the the ransom was never paid. The kidnapping made national news and the FBI set up a hotline. A man named John Henderson was identified by several people as a kidnapper after seeing a composite of the man. I felt so bad I know, for this man, guy. I felt so bad for that guy, too. Like, you could tell beyond a shadow of a doubt that that guy was innocent. Like, there was no question in my mind that he had nothing to do with that. Henderson was a maintenance man who had uh, no apparent connection to John Grunhofer. A search of his house turned up nothing. However, Henderson participated in a lineup where Grunhofer identified him as the kidnapper. However, Jeff Rasmussen, the eyewitness in the garage, did not identify Henderson as a kidnapper. Nevertheless, the FBI continued to look for evidence, and although a handwriting test did not match, they believed that Henderson's alibi was not airtight. Henderson was subject to a grand jury investigation, but no charges were ever filed. A $100,000 reward is being offered in the case. So, they show the sketch, police sketch of the kidnapper... I mean, goddamn. Uh, he's not a looker. No. Um, he, he looks like fucking Krang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> con- yeah, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> or some kind of like... <laughs> like if Dick Tracy really let himself go. <laughs> I'm on my way. <laughs> and he's ta- he takes forever because he's... He's out of shape, and he, he's a fat boy now. Um, <laughs> it looks like a car. He, I have expected he, this guy to come with the soundtrack of, you know, a tuba. <laughs> you know, every time he'd take a step. He's just, like, so cartoony looking. With it. He's got a big-ass nose, big-ass lips, yeah. like these silly circle glasses, this safari-looking hat, uh-huh. this big old like double said, chin. He's got, he's got the... The uh, beady little eyes, trench coat. He was wearing the trench coat and the hat. He's he's a chubby Inspector Gadget. Yeah, In- Inspector Ratchet. <laughs> so, um, this case remains Inspector Fat Shit. Oh, okay, Mike. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this case remains unsolved. John Henderson was later cleared as a suspect. The true kidnapper was never identified. Interestingly, there has been some recent speculation that John Grunhofer actually staged his kidnapping in order to gain sympathy from the Mm. public. This theory has not been confirmed. Yeah, because this Grunhofer guy was hired 
as CEO to basically come in and quote unquote save the company money, i.e. fire a bunch of yeah. people. And that's what yeah. he did. He was very good at firing people and he laid off a bunch of people. And uh yeah, he probably was hated, you know, by But like how do you gain sympathy from the public who already hate you for being a you know, a guy who just showed up for one thing and one thing only just to clean house. I mean, how is this going to really gain that much sympathy? Oh, you got kidnapped and there was a ransom and you and the company didn't lose any money because nothing ever came from it and you're okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, if that was his plan, it's a pretty fucking shitty plan, if you ask me, because he's no, he, more than likely... He didn't gain that much sympathy, if any at all, from these from the public that were already against him at the time. It makes sense, though, that theory, because of just how... Uh, well, yeah, how inept the guy right. is. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you know, this this, you know, this could have been someone that Grunhofer hired because there was a witness in the garage, an independent witness who did, you know see that this was going on but at the same time you know the the, the guy you know couldn't get his shit together i don't yeah. know it's such a bizarre case yeah it is very bizarre i remember seeing it and just being like wow like just like what the fuck like what what you know you got this fat fuck who you know is out of shape can't even go down a hill without getting winded getting winded and then he needs a cheat sheet in order to go through this whole thing. How do you not remember to say, like, do what do what I say or I'll harm your family? Like, how how is yeah. how is that like slipping your mind that, that you need to, like, write it down? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've never heard of like a criminal who has a cheat sheet before, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think there have been instances where there have been criminals who have been caught who wrote notes down and things like that, but they didn't like carry it around with them and leave it behind for investigators to find. But I didn't do that intentionally. Or did he? Or maybe, you know, the, this is a whole like, oh, Grundhofer's working with this guy. Leave the cheat sheet. Maybe the guy actually was someone that Grundhofer knew or was made aware of who actually knew what he was doing, but in order to keep the FBI or the the criminal, you know, the uh, investigators off the case or off the scent, they made it look like he was just an inept criminal who had no idea what he was doing. Yeah, and the fact that it's still unsolved too also makes me kind of dubious. Yeah. Like, what what was going on here? If it was like a business thing, you know, the the company itself was, you know, behind all of this, then kind of makes sense that we haven't really solved this case. Um, hey, yeah, it's just it, and then and there's no explanation or motive. There's not there's none of that. It's just the guy just randomly was just like I'm gonna I'm gonna kidnap this Grundhofer guy. I'm gonna ask for money. Yeah, I don't know. Who the fuck knows? The world will never know, Mike. That's the sad thing. (laughs) 
so those are our cases for this week. How did you feel about that, Mike? Was that a good experience for you? I think it was fine. Was it good for you? Because you sound a bit tired. I am tired. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Probably because I drank last night. Yeah, there we go. And the night before. <laughs> All right. I, I, was, I, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> but, you know. Oh, did it sound obvious? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. Damn it. Whatever. J- Joss is a little... Well, not not super hungover, but no, know, I'm I'm not hungover. Yeah, I'm just tired, and and I'm laying back in uh, a chair right now, so ah, my vocal cords might sound a little bit more, I don't know, stretched or something. Yeah, it wasn't just that. Like, there's a little bit slower to the to the punch. Well, didn't really have as much to say. Either, I am but I, hey, I am cool. I am highly medicated <laughs> as well. Oh. Yes. Oh, no. On multiple drugs. Lysine, fucking loretidine. Damn. That, those are both vitamins and antihistamines. But still, they are <laughs> drugs nonetheless. Well, okay, that makes, you know, if you're taking, like, allergy meds, like, those can really, like, dry you out and make you a little drowsy. So. So, yeah, that's the podcast for this week. If you would like to catch me and Mike on Patreon so you get this episode earlier than uh, the rest of the world. Consider subscribing to our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Um, we have uh, like three tiers there. We're trying to keep it simple and deliver on the things that we say we're going to do on there. And it's just a lot easier to cut it down and simplify it and do it like that than to do all these wackadoo tiers that we'll never get around to. But... With that being said, there is some bonus segments on there from the past. There's some covers that I did of me singing songs and all that. So you can go and access that material as well. If that sounds like something you'd want to hear. Um, you can join our Facebook group by going to Facebook and under the groups tab, typing in Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. It's a really awesome group. And currently there is a big political debate going on in there that I stoked the fires to because I'm a little agitator apparently about the uh, it's it's between our fine Canadian listeners and their Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the whole brown face scandal I just wanted to see what the Canadians felt about it and what their take was on it because you know me being American like I know how much that blow up that would blow up here but I just wonder how an, another country, you know, would react to it. Seeing as blackface stems from slavery, which, you know, predominantly took place in the U.S. as far as the most famous cases of plantations and all that other kind of shit. That was kind of a U.S. thing, not so much a Canadian thing, to my knowledge. Although I could be ignorant on that. It, it could have happened in Canada, too. So I don't know if they see it the same way there as we would in America. But that's why I asked. And so they're feuding right now. It's actually been pretty level-headed until just now when I just checked it. It looks like it's heating up a bit. So if you want to join our group, um, there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening. You never know what's going to go on in there. And it's just a fun little group, usually. Uh, And uh, lastly, if you want to follow me and Mike separately but equally, you can subscribe to our respective YouTube channels. Mike's YouTube channel is youtube.com slash OCP Communications. He's a movie guy. Mike, what was the last thing you talked about? Um, 
So I did the review of Crawl, but I haven't really done anything new lately because I've been a little bit under the weather. But I did post an unboxing video uh, from a, a subscriber from Ireland. Um, sent me an old Empire magazine from 1997. It had a Batman and Ro it had a George Clooney as Batman on the cover. <laughs> this is before the movie came out, so people were still hyped for Batman and Robin. Was he in the Batman outfit? Yes. Oh, so you, that was the premiere of the Bat Nipples? Yeah, possibly, yeah. Um, so it was actually a pretty cool magazine. I, I wouldn't mind getting more older magazines because it is exactly like going back. It's 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 a time capsule, right? It's like flipping through a certain time period, you know, with the advertisements, right. especially. Like you're just like, oh, an advertisement for a Simpsons. VHS. <laughs> yeah, I have a bunch of like Spin and Rolling Stone magazines from like the uh -huh. early 2000s to mid 2000s, and I just don't know what to do with them. I've like reread through most of them, and I'm like, should I like throw these out or like like that wouldn't be as much of a trip? For yeah, because like it was 2000s, yeah, because mid 2000s. It's, it's, I because I remember reading those when I was a teenager, so I'm just like rereading shit that I like. It's like, I, yeah. it's like, that seems like just yesterday that I read that, even though it was, but like, you know. reading stuff from like the 90s or the 80s. Yeah, when you're a kid you know. or you weren't even born yet. Yeah, I, lo I yeah. love stu seeing stuff like that. I, I, I don't know. Like, I went on eBay and I saw that people can, you know, you can get a little bit of money for selling like an old Rolling Stone magazine, but it's not like anything crazy. So I don't know. I'm probably just going to end up. It feels so wrong to like just throw them in the recycling, but it's like they're just taking up space. And they're old magazines, you know? If I if yeah. I lived in a house that I knew I was going to stay in for a really long time, then uh, I'd hold on to them, and I'd just keep them on a shelf. Uh -huh. But I... Well, I mean, I have a bunch of old uh, Star Logs. I, I, I've been collecting Fangoria magazines. But Fangoria is actually a collector's item. You know, it's a, a horror... The horror fan base is pretty diverse and pretty large nowadays. And uh, the warehouse that had a lot of back issues back in the day, it burned down. So with with uh, with Fangoria and stuff from from Starlog, who I think that's the same company that actually was releasing Fangoria. Um, it is one of those things. It's like get your physical magazines now, because there's no telling how many are left. You know, and it's probably something that'll probably go up in price as the years go by because it'll be harder and harder to get because most of everything's just going to be in a private collection somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I see what you mean. It depends with magazines. That's the thing. It really depends. I really hate. Like I know there's still I hate the, I, there's still gamers who are into old. Oh game yeah, Pro Nintendo Power. Or, if you, you know Nintendo yeah, Power, those are definitely worth money for sure. It, it, yeah, it just, it really does depend. I have some guitar player magazines and they have tabs for like songs and like, that's pretty cool. Like it shows you like the music basically on how to play these mm -hmm. songs. But then it's like, yeah. I can, I can like just look that up online though. Now, you know, I also have some, a bunch of old wizard magazines. Uh, I, I, I miss wizard magazine. It was a really cool magazine. Talked about, you know, comics and it was a comic book magazine. Um, also talked about some comic book films and shows and other stuff. It was really cool magazine, and, and it just, uh, it had a good following, and then I think there's a com another company bought out the 
Wizard and Wizard Entertainment, and then you know when the internet really started to uh, take over, uh, it just wasn't worth publishing anymore, and they weren't making any money, and just went under. This just it sucks, but it's how a lot of magazines are going. I mean, Fangoria came back recently, but they're charging twenty bucks a magazine. Oof. What the fuck? I would never pay that much for a fucking magazine. I'd barely pay that much for a book. I know. The nerve of those people. <laughs> but so that's the last video I did. I'm gonna be posting a couple, uh, some new stuff fairly soon because um, I'm I miss doing YouTube videos. Uh, there's stuff that I wanted to do but I couldn't do because of the the cold. So I'm gonna get back into the swing of things pretty soon. So there'll probably be some new stuff that'll probably be posted. Uh, um, Rob, I mean, I'm recording this podcast on a Friday, so it'll probably be posted long before you uh, decide to check out the channel. If if you do, right on, right on. You can. So Josh also has a YouTube. Yeah, channel. you can find me on YouTube. It's YouTube.com/slash Dancing with Ghosts. Uh, the, the my most recent video I did was uh, the Battle of the New Rock Bands. Uh, Tool, Rammstein, Slipknot, and Korn all released new albums this year, the year of 2019. And it it I said even in the video I said, "Geez, all I'm missing is Limp Biscuit," and you basically have my playlist from eighth grade. Well, hey, well Limp Biscuit, you know Fred Durst did something new. He directed the film The Fanatic. Was that any good? It's it's not good, but it's entertaining. <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of like it sucks. It's bad, but it, it's 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 entertaining to watch. Uh, um, John Travolta plays some slubby uh, fanatic of a movie star, and you know he he decides to uh, break and enter into the movie star's mansion, and you know crazy. Craziness ensues, and it's directed by Fred Durst. Jesus, who would have fucking figured? But yeah, I basically I'm 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 doing like little reviews on each of the new albums by Tool, Corn, Slipknot, and Rammstein, and that Tool, their new album, I guess, is doing really well. Apparently, I mean, I don't know how well or not well it's doing, but I I do know that most fans that I know are disappointed by the album, myself included. No, it was it was number one on I think the Billboard charts or something. Well, for, that's for that's because Tool's one of those bands that has a cult following, and they haven't put out an album in thirteen years, and so anything they put out, regardless of the quality, is going to shoot up the charts because they're one of the last true like rock oriented bands out there. And uh-huh. so, you know, they're like the modern day Pink Floyd to a lot of these kids. So anything they put out, they're just, you know, people are going to drink it up. And I'm just I'm over here being objective and being like, this album is boring. It's bland. It, it We waited 13 years for this. This sounds like these so- these songs sound like they could have been written in a week for those guys. Like, it just sounds like a bunch uh-huh. of jam sessions. It doesn't sound like anything special. There's no there's no like guitar like hook where you're like man that's badass there's not i mean it's just the most watered down tool album out there that this will this Uh will now be one of their worst albums i guarantee you because before that it was it was like almost impossible to pick like 
what is Tool's worst album because they were all so highly regarded. But now this one easily is their worst album because it is just uh-huh. so lackluster. And then Corn, they're just doing standard Corn, trying to sound, you know, trying to sound like Corn, but trying to be more mainstream at the same time. And Jonathan Davis is still singing about shit like he's a teenager still and how life is fucked up, you know, and it's like, God, dude, grow up. You're pushing 50, my dude. Stop crying in your songs like it's it's old. <laughs> then you got Slipknot. They, their album actually was pretty decent. Had a few songs in there that I really liked. And I mean, it's Slipknot. So, you know, you know what you're getting when you go in to a Slipknot album? You're getting Slipknot. So it sounds like Slipknot, but there are some really hooky melodic uh, melodies in there that do get stuck in your head. And then Rammstein's new album, which is untitled, easily is the best of the four. Um, it has the most me- uh, melody. It has the most hooks. It has the most memorable songs. It has the most songs that sound uncompromising and are staying true to Rammstein's uh, sound. So that was my favorite. But then, you know, this is this is one of those videos where I already have uh, 11 thumbs up and 27 thumbs down. It's one of those videos where like the the, mm-hmm. the the like to dislike ratio is already like out of my favor. But that's okay <laughs> though, because it's a, I, I released it like yesterday and it's already got like five hundred views. And for my channel, that's like that's yeah. that means it's doing really good. <laughs> yeah, so so with Tool, um I, I wanted to bring up that there was a lot of uh millennials or even younger uh, generation <laughs> members who <laughs> Who are complaining about Tool, you know, knocking out Taylor Swift from the from the top in the number one spot? Like they're all like, "Who the f- what the fuck is Tool?" You know, what is Tool? <laughs> See if a bunch of like Taylor Swift fans, you know, confused about Tool and you know talking all kinds of shit about Tool. I'm more annoyed at those kids' parents <laughs> than I am at the kids because those kids don't know any better. If they grew up listening to Tool, they'd like it. They'd be able to. They'd be able to like make the conscious choice in their brain that this is higher quality music than this other shit. But these kids just haven't been exposed to good music. And the only way they get exposed to it is when a rapper samples it in one of their fucking songs. And some of the kids get curious enough to see what the original sample was. And that's why Sting and Phil Con- and all these other people who get sampled, they- all of a sudden their plays shoot up. Because like uh, this guy- or 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 Queen. You know, when Bohemian Rhapsody came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, like, Queen has such a reemergence in popularity. Like, I went and DJed this 12-year-old's birthday party last Saturday, and they wanted to do karaoke, and they mainly did, like, top 40 pop bullshit, but the only time they deviated from that, well, it was actually two times they deviated, was uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. And these kids are 12, man, meaning they were born in, like, what? 2007 or something like that yeah yeah when i was you know behemoth rhapsody is is a great song but it's honestly not one of my favorite it's it's not no there are so many better queen songs out there or or i i shouldn't say better there are so many great queen songs out there besides bohemian rhapsody that people just never never talk about i mean even even in their hits, even when it comes to their radio hits, even if you just want to stay with their radio hits, Killer Queen, no one ever talks about that song. They never talk about, like, uh, I don't know, crazy little thing called Show Must Go love, On. Show Must Go On. Uh, 
You know, it's like, don't you never really hear about those princes of the universe. Was, was that a hit, though? It sounds like more of a deeper cut. No, I think it was a decent hit. It was, for, it was from the soundtrack to Highlander. No, but yeah, like, I don't know. Or the fact that they did the entire soundtrack for the movie Flash Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> I love that score. Yeah, and then the other song, the uh, 12-year-old saying that was out of character was We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know. What? I don't know how they chose <laughs> that. I don't know how they knew about that song. But she's like, yeah, we want to do We Didn't Start the Fire. And I'm like, by Billy Joel? And I'm like, okay. That's cool. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It was also that's how they got that's how they learned their history. Yeah, I bet. Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if in their school, like their their teacher was like, hey, we're going to you're going to learn about history through this song because there is a shit ton of historical references in that song. Because I was sitting there reading the lyrics as the kids were singing them. I'm like, damn, this song has a lot more like like uh, historical stuff in it than I initially realized. But yeah, anyway, that's one of my favorite Joel Joel songs that we didn't start the fire. The music video is great too. Billy Joel trying to look as cool as he possibly can, <laughs> but still not quite on the same level as those other rock stars because he's still Billy Joel. Yeah. So he's got like the sunglasses and he's standing in front of you know the fire and everything. <laughs> he's got his arms crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but any hoozles, uh, I guess that does it for the podcast. Uh, you guys have a good rest of your week, and we will see you next yep. time. Goodbye. See ya. I wish that we could stay in the white room waiting there. Eyes on the door. You were in my dreams, but you don't speak. Do you know me if I
It's like a succession of things I need to come down from eating. It's like a drug <laughs> addict. I start off with my main course, which today was pizza. And you have to slowly taper the demon down. So I went from pizza to chocolate. And I went from chocolate to lifesavers and now from lifesavers to gum. <laughs> so is this a, a normal thing for yeah. you? Yes, yes it is. Huh. Is it because uh, in the past you would just like gorge on food? Yeah, pretty much. So all that shit that I do is kind of like the rodeo clown that's like, hey, hey, look over here, look over here. So I'm not like going crazy, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. My, yeah. my mom told me when I was a little kid, because she saw how much I liked gum, she's like, you're going to have a very addictive personality when you get older. <laughs> she's like, you better never try drugs. Because she could see it at that age. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was right. I mean, I've, had, I've been semi-addicted to everything that I've tried, except weed. I never really got addicted to weed. I didn't really like it that much. Have you ever smoked weed? Nope. It's not. It's not that great. Probably it's, won't. It's not all it's cracked up to be. I'm not really into alcohol. I'm not really into drugs. It's just you know, if I want to get you know loose or silly, all I have to do is just drink a ton of caffeine. Oh my god! <laughs> Which is probably not really the best for me either. <laughs> that sounds like how I would get loose and silly when I was in like seventh grade. <laughs> All right, I'm officially ready. <laughs> Princess Josh is finally ready. <clears throat> All right. 